3: spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
2: Good evening everyone uh, from metropolitan New York City area where it's lovely and very sunny outside and sort of a wonderful day actually to talk about archaeology kind of wish we were in the field um, today's program is another in a segment another segment in a series of programs that we have dedicated to looking at the elements of public outreach in archaeology which has increasingly become a more important and more compelling element in uh, the archaeological universe because, as we have discussed on numerous other occasions, the uh, funding sources for archaeology, the traditional funding sources, research uh, and governmental grants are diminishing and archaeologists are uh, increasingly held accountable to the public for doing the type of work that they do, Uh, it has been actually a big blessing in many ways because it connects people with archaeology and demonstrates a connection between the past and the present on a very fundamental level. And in today's program, we are very fortunate to look at public outreach in the city of Baltimore, Maryland, which unless you've been in a cave for a very long time, you know, has been besieged by a series of difficulties and problems. And we are looking at public outreach as possibly a way of bridging gaps and instructing people on heritage and their backgrounds. And my two guests will discuss the nature of public outreach in Baltimore from the perspective of uh, an excavation and their own particular careers, which have been dedicated um, to doing this type of work. My uh, two guests are actually a married couple. Uh, My first guest is archaeologist Lisa Krause who holds a PhD in uh, historical, historical archaeology from the University of Texas at Austin and she has worked as an archaeologist for the Maryland Environmental Service and Highway Administration since 2009. Her work includes studies of eighteenth century taverns in Maryland, and she has also been working with website developers again, another uh, element of sort of future of the future, really where archaeology is going, trying to link communication to public outreach and uh, she has worked in uh, the area of Bladensburg, Maryland, uh, on the topics of archaeology and its um, documentation of the War of 1812. Thank you for appearing on the program, Lisa Kraus.
4: Thank you very much for having
2: me. And uh, Jason Sh- uh, Schellenhammer has 15 years of experience in archaeology, a master's degree in applied anthropology from a, a very... Uh, well-known program certainly in archaeological circles uh, at the University of Maryland. Uh, Mr. Schellenheimer's projects have included survey work at the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal Historic Park, the Antietam National Battlefield, uh, Gettysburg, the Gettysburg National Military Park, and the Peterson House at the Ford's Theater National Historic Site. Welcome to you as well, Jason. It's a pleasure being here. So let's begin, uh, and let me start with you, uh, Lisa Kraus. Uh, what is the situation? What kind of work are you doing in Baltimore? Uh,
4: the the current project we're doing uh, is one that Jason and I started. That is not affiliated with with any university or uh, federal or state agency. It's. Uh, Entirely a community-based project that we envisioned when we first moved to our neighborhood in northeast Baltimore. Um, and, and it has actually been a fantastic experience. I think you, you hit on at the very beginning this idea that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, that Baltimore uh, is a place that is very much in need of help uh, right now, whether that help comes from within or without, um, people are looking for ways to make meaningful connections with their neighbors, their communities, um, and ways of, you know, helping their their neighborhoods pull together and uh, make new things possible, make things, you know, the basic fundamentals of life possible in neighborhoods in Baltimore. And you know, while I certainly don't think that archaeology can do that all by itself, um, one of the things that we really hoped would happen when we started this project was that people would pull together, find a, um, we, that we would find an archaeological site in the park in our neighborhood, Herring Run Park, uh, and that people would find value in the experience of working together to discover and tell the story of the archaeological sites that we find there. Uh, and I think that that's gone remarkably well for us.
2: And uh, tell us a little bit about the project itself.
4: Um, in terms of the... Uh, what we were looking for, where it is
2: Everything? Yeah, Yeah. well, oh. let, let's start with this. You had mentioned a very interesting point that this is not an excavation that is university funded or in fact, from what I'm gathering, uh, not organizationally funded. So how does one go about getting the kinds of funds to support this kind of an excavation? And if you have an affiliation, how does it work in terms of administering the funds and organizing the projects? Uh, why don't you tackle that one first? How you how you how you decided to go about it, and and what you actually did to uh, to put together this type of an excavation? Because without some kind of a university umbrella, or uh, some kind of a cultural resources umbrella, it sounds to me that this would be a pretty challenging thing to do, and one that had to be pretty creative. Uh,
4: yes, and and we solved that in a variety of ways that mostly had to do with. Complete, unadulterated luck. Um, both Jason and I are <laughs> professional archaeologists, and we both happen to live in Baltimore. Uh, last year, Jason was involved in a project for uh, a nonprofit that we are very fortunate to have here in Baltimore, Baltimore Heritage, uh, which is uh, an organization of two people who uh, they do historic tours of neighborhoods in Baltimore, and in the last few years have started trying to fund and promote archaeological projects in the city. Uh, So he worked at their Patterson Park excavation uh, the previous year. And as it happened, in our neighborhood in northeast Baltimore, Laurelville, there was a group of citizens who had loosely organized a group called the Northeast Baltimore History Roundtable. And when they saw how successful the public project in Patterson Park was, they approached Baltimore Heritage about um, having a similar project happen in Laraville. At the exact same time, Jason and I had moved to Laraville. We loved it uh, and were super dorks. So the instant we moved here, we started looking at historic maps. We started walking around and looking for things in the landscape that we might be able to archaeologize because that's just how we are. Um, So we we had started talking about uh, the possibility of creating a public project in our neighborhood all of these things kind of happened at the same time, and Baltimore Heritage told the History Roundtable, did you know that you have archaeologists living in your neighborhood? Maybe you should talk to those guys. And they did. Um, we were, uh, Jason and I, very happy to donate our time. So we meet the qualifications to conduct an archaeological survey in the state of Maryland. Um, we applied for and received a... Um, a very generous and kind grant from an organization called Preservation Maryland that covered our equipment expenses. Uh, And then using uh, our relationship with Baltimore Heritage, they were kind of our umbrella organization, and they handled things like putting um, putting information on their website and organizing volunteers and things like that. But essentially, aside from the equipment that we purchased, the entire thing was unfunded. Um, and that was one of the things that Jason and I really wanted to try, was to see if, uh, since there's so little archaeology happening in Baltimore and there's so little money or, or interest on the governmental level in doing archaeology, is it possible that we could create a sustainable model for investigating and researching archaeology in the city uh, that used a, almost entirely grassroots community effort to accomplish something that was really meaningful. Um, so that's sort of the basic outline of of how it happened. I hope that was, that sounded really convoluted and crazy. Um,
2: Anyway, that's well, it doesn't. It. it doesn't at all, but I'm, I'm just impressed by the way that you were actually able to sort of go out there and say, uh, okay, uh, we have sort of a baseline model for doing this kind of thing. Um, let's go and, and sort of project that model onto another area, one, I assume, which is close to where you live, or why was this area selected? Again. Well,
4: it's – oh,
2: sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Why was it selected? <laughs>
4: It's very close to our house, for one thing. Well, that that becomes a very
2: that becomes a very interesting uh, way of doing things because uh, normally that would be a pretty tough sell to do, and no matter who's funding it, whether it's a historic partnership, whether or not it's. it's it's any other kind of an interest because, as 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 you know, and, and and as most of the people listening to the program know, archaeology is done because it has to be done because of compliance guidelines, and or if it's under a university umbrella, it's done because there is uh, federal or state or even municipal support for. Um, undertaking a project that would clearly have some a priori interest for a particular area, for a particular purpose in terms of learning about heritage. And so I, I am, I'm amazed that you're able to, to do this basically uh, on the strength of another uh, set of, of uh of guidelines, and so uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about that issue in particular when we get back. Uh, we'll be back after these words. Stay tuned, don't go away.
0: News. News. Opinion. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. On the morning of August 5th, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night, Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program.
2: We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein with an episode of uh, Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology and today's topic is very very uniquely a 21st century archaeological endeavor. We are talking to uh, Dr. Lisa Kraus and uh, Jason Schellenhamer and they are a couple that have coordinated a community-based archaeological endeavor and have done so based on the strength of their own uh, personal interests and their um, need, uh, I guess, a personal motivation to develop the type of community outreach programs that are increasingly finding a foothold in many uh, urban areas and in, uh, in, in across the United States. Um, Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about the actual implementation of this project. Tell us where it is. I guess it's in northeast Baltimore, but for those of us who are not familiar with that part of the world or that part of the country, I should say, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you put this excavation together and how it moved along through uh, through time and, and where it stands right now.
1: Sure. Uh, so sure. The, um, so yeah. the project originally started as... Um, yeah, you know, as Lisa had mentioned, that the Northeast uh, Baltimore History Roundtable was interested in doing a project in their local park, um, which just happens to be two blocks down the street. Um, but other than that, they were not aware of. They had an idea that there were mills in the pro- on the property um, in the, the, the city park, but they didn't know what types of mills, how old they were. They were just, so we really started with a blank slate, um, not really knowing what kind of cultural resources were actually present um, within the park. So um, the first thing that we did, um, Lisa and I, were um, we started doing some historical research, um, looking at land grants and uh, historic maps and some deeds of the property, um, as well as just doing an initial survey of, of the park, trying to identify any potential sites that would be um, I, I guess welcoming to a, a large-scale public archaeology project. So um, it ended up as we started you know pulling off the layers of, um, of history on, on this site. We actually the, the park is phenomenally, you know, historic um, and prehistoric, and um, the earliest settlement in, in this portion of the park was in 1695, so um, a fairly early um, occupation in, uh, in Baltimore County, um, and it was continuously occupied up until about 1908. Uh, when the um, the family who owned owners at the time, the Halls, uh, sold their portions of of the park to uh, Baltimore City for the establishment of a park. So again, we kind of lucked out there in that we had a pretty much pristine, un, um, unimpacted landscape. We didn't have any issues as far as what you would typically find in an urban setting, where you have land development, continually continual de- construction, um, you know, development of. Of city blocks, um, this place is basically a virgin landscape. I'm um, just waiting to uh, to be discovered. So um, that's that's how we initially found it. Um, as far as implementation, um, when we first started going out into the park, now we knew that there were things, there were there were potential for historic and prehistoric resources within the park. Um, based on historical research, we were able to identify that there was, in fact, several mills that are located within the current park boundaries. Uh, one mill dates back to 1760. Another one dates back to about the 18-teens. Um, in addition, there was a um, fairly well-established um, plantation home that was a retreat of one of the property owners, William Smith. Um, and uh, he then gave the property to his uh, daughter and then through her family um, maintained it up until the 20th century. So they had tenant homes um, on the property. They had um, a hotel, which became the Hall Springs hotel um, named after both the Hall family as well as natural spring that continues to flow um, through the park. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, there were um, the, the other interesting thing that we are hoping to get to later on is um, the William Smith and his, um, his descendants through his daughter, the Halls, they um, also were a slave owning family in, in Baltimore. And so, um there's potential for identifying uh, slave quarters with on, within the property as well. So um, there was a lot of intri- intriguing possibilities, but whether or not anything still existed, we had to do some ground truthing. Um, so we did an um, initial shovel test survey um, on locations that we, we deemed high potential. And it seemed like every time we put a shovel in the ground, we found something. Uh, so the um, first day out there, within two hours, we found the cellar of the Hall Springs Hotel uh-huh. Um, and then the next weekend we went out there, we identified what, what we did, would later discover to be the Utah manor house. And, um, the, the amount of, you know, we had intact features just from an initial weekend survey. Um, we had looks that we were getting from about 1760 to about 1865. Um, and so we thought this might be the best location for a, uh, for a, a public project. Um, so, um, we crossed our fingers. We started the public project. Um, we got some funding, as Lisa said, from Preservation Maryland um, through our partners um, in our community. We um, started developing a, a research plan um, and uh, and started the ball, ball rolling. So that was the initial beginning.
2: So um, I'm gathering here that you you had talked about... A very standard procedure that's done in archaeology when when you're trying to search out potential areas of archaeological interest, and obviously you had done the map research and you had done the documentation research, so you knew that this estate and this historical uh, uh, historically significant structure and set of structures, you knew that it was there, and basically that that was the basis for. Um, uh, doing the uh, the guided shovel test survey, correct? That is correct. Okay, now in addition to that, one of the things that I think would interest the public here is why this particular location, I mean, Lisa had said... Um, uh, that it was near your house, in addition to it being near your house. Were there any red flags out there that said, you know, this could be unusually interesting or it would have been, say, some kind of a time capsule for a particular time or there were uh, settlement elements or socio-organizational elements of this particular property that would be of interest? I mean, what time frame are we talking about and, and uh, how did you go about isolating that?
4: Uh, I'm going to jump in really quickly uh, just t- to add one thing that um, while we were certainly interested because it was nearby and it was a place that we walked every day and that we passed mm-hmm. on our way to work every day. Um, essentially anywhere in Baltimore, um, I-, I would consider at this point almost in need of salvage archaeology. Um, sure. That the, uh, the city uses a variety of funding sources but uh but federal and state money are often um not the main funding source so they are not they are either not beholden to section 106 or simply do not do a particularly good job of observing section 106 um so and in addition to that, in the parks, um, it is it is quite easy for twenty five dollars to get a metal detecting permit to go into the park and metal detecting. Ah, okay, okay,
2: okay, okay. Um, I should uh, I should point <laughs> out to those of us or those in the listening audience, that when those terms are are bandied about Section 106, a reference is made to the legal guidelines that have to be followed when an archaeological site is being excavated under a compliance umbrella. And, of course, in your particular situation, no such thing existed because you were doing this basically as a private endeavor, right?
4: Yes. Um, with the, the permission of the park um, and uh, the, the friends of the park who were instrumental in, in getting us the permits that we needed. Um, okay. In addition, there are two large projects happening in that park in the next year, um, a major bridge project and a uh, trail replacement project that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there was an urgency <laughs> to, to to any archaeology that you were doing anywhere in Baltimore, and, and it continues to this day that... I feel like uh, the citizens of Baltimore are being robbed of their heritage on a daily basis. Um, so there is more than just, um, you know, sort of a, oh, well, th- that would be fun. <laughs> it was also very much that we were watching these projects uh, move forward and discovered that no archaeological work was ever going to happen in the park unless we did it ourselves. Um, but I will now throw this back to Jason so he can talk about. Uh, what it was in particular about those sites uh, that was of, of a special interest, especially to our neighborhoods.
2: Mm-hmm. So, Jason, why don't you pick it up from there? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> the one interesting
1: thing about the, um, the Hall Springs is that um, by the mid 18th century, mid um, 19th century, I'm, correct, I'm let me correct myself, mid 19th century, um, there were several mills that were being developed here. And um, mill towns, um, Kind of sprung up around it. Um, during the 19th century, all across Baltimore, there's communities uh, in Hamden um, along the Jones Falls, which runs straight through, just to give you an idea for those who aren't from Baltimore and know Baltimore very well, runs run straight through the center of the city. Um, milling was a, was a very important part of the industry and, um, the development of Baltimore during the 18th and 19th century. And Mm -hmm. when industrial mills started to be developed in the, in the 19th century, uh, communities, basically mill owners started developing, um, the, um, mill towns, um, where they would own all the property around the mill, build housing for the mills, um, for the millers to uh, live in. They would have Miller stores, um, where basically their entire life of these, these mill workers would be, um, isolated to these mills and would be, de- be completely dependent on these mills. And then by the early 20th century, there were um, these mill towns then became communities within Baltimore. Um, we knew, we know very well about the development of mill communities in uh, Northern Baltimore near in the Hamden community. Um, thanks to um, another fellow archeologist, Dave Gadsby. Um, but we don't know very much about the mill communities that developed in Northeast and our, our, Community that we live in right now, our neighborhood is called Lauraville and uh, the mill community that developed within Herring Run Park by the Hall family uh, essentially was the, um, the genesis of the Lauraville community um, because of the mill that was there. We had, um, we had mill workers housings. We had a, um, a hotel that was a very prominent hotel on a uh, main thoroughfare into the city at the time. And um eventually there was even a church called the Utah Church that was developed so that the, the mill workers could have um town. And then as the twentieth century progressed, more community this area became um kind of isolated, not isolated, um I guess picked out by developers as being an idyllic location. And um other developers started building up their residences and uh in you know, small developments and um that's what Northeast Baltimore is now. So, um, it was kind of like the, the, our interest in this was multifaceted. Um, but one of our major things we live in Laurelville, um, our neighbors are, we've found as we've lived here for the last three years that, um, our community, our neighborhood is very interested in history and their own history and being that Herring Run Park seems to be the, the the epicenter of what became the Laurelville community. Um, we had a great interest from our local community. Um, to want to invest. So I guess that's, um, speaking of like why this was an important area for us. Now, um, the site that we chose, um, specifically being the, uh, Utah Manor House, which was the home of, um, of William Smith and then the later, um, his daughter and grandchildren, uh, the halls, they, the reason we chose that house was basically, um, convenience, um, in that it obviously doesn't have, this, I mean, it has some relevance to the mill community that developed, and we do intend to eventually move on to those locations. Um, but the reason we chose the Utah Manor House is because of the, just the, the quantity of um, cultural material, both features that we were identifying and artifacts during the initial um, preliminary survey. Um, it seemed like the ideal location, the, the main reason for that is the worst part, worst thing to do in a public archaeology project is invite mm-hmm your entire community to come out and do archaeology and they find nothing. <laughs> right. Um, of course. So yes. it, it really doesn't, it, it wouldn't help us build a larger project. Um, and there are interesting research questions that we are, are, um, are curious about and hope that our, our initial excavation at the Utah house um, does answer, but we feel that this was just a, a very, a very good beginning. And from this, we plan to build and move to other locations within the park um, and each site that we identify um, because they were all owned by the same family, um, would hopefully inform each other and eventually develop a better a better context of what um, the Utah Herring Run property was.
2: Okay. We'll be back and continue this very fascinating discussion on community-based archaeology and these uh, very admirable efforts on the part of two archaeologists, Lisa Krauss and, and, and Jason Schellenhammer, After these words, please stay tuned. There's much more to come. We'll be right back. Uh, This is Joe Schildenrein, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Keep it where it is. We'll be right back.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, The Sharon Kleiner Hour. Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is Health from an Environmental Perspective your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing?
2: A uh, segment of Indiana Jones myth, reality, and 21st-century archaeology that is focused on a concept that is gaining increased popularity and as well as acceptance, and that is community-based archaeology. My two guests are uh, Lisa Krauss and Jason Schellenheimer, Hamer, who have worked together in uh, the northeastern Baltimore. To develop a an excavation that looks essentially at the historic and the heritage-based components of an area in which they live, and we were discussing during the break uh, that these types of initiatives really require a major commitment on the part of the archaeologists themselves, because as we have discussed. In previous programs, archaeology is largely done because it has to get done under the guidelines and under the umbrella of of legal strictures, which say that essentially if a property is going to be developed by a public concern for Uh, for whatever reason, then archaeology gets rolled into the regulatory environment and it gets done. However, uh, this project in a sense is a throwback and it's basically going back to a time when, uh, and it, it wasn't that long ago, but it was a while ago certainly, when people did archaeology because they had every reason to believe, based on previous research and what they had done, that a site of some significance was going to be in a particular location. Of course, there are maps, certainly of the historic periods that that point that up, and that's not done anymore as, as much as as it used to be, and certainly not done very much in urban areas where, obviously, you simply just can't dig up A property that's going to be underlain by utilities and water mains and uh, uh, potentially dangerous situations that uh, inhibit your ability to do that. So my hats are off to you for doing this. And uh, I I guess one of the things I I would like to ask you is what were exactly you were looking for? You were looking for the estate and you were looking at the structures themselves. And you have a vision clearly of what this would mean for the community. And I'd like for Lisa to expand a little bit on that particular theme, how she how you both sort of visualized the fruits of this uh, excavation, what that would be and, and where you see it going forward.
4: Okay. Um well as Jason explained, this is um a park and a site that um that has a very long history um predating the founding of Baltimore as a city. Um and something that might have been a little confusing is that when when the site was occupied uh, historically, this location was in Baltimore County. Um we, we became part of the city in nineteen eighteen, so it's now uh-huh. a city. Um but uh in terms of tying that in to something to do with the community. In our community, there are a lot of people who are very interested in history and there are a lot of people who have no clue about history and assume that it would be quite boring and also assume that our community pretty much has none uh-huh. um, <laughs> or don't understand what it is. And um, like a lot of places in Baltimore, uh there have been, especially in the twentieth and going into the twenty first century, there have been strange uh, race relations, uh, class relations, and uh, we can see the seeds of that um, in the site that we're excavating. And one of the things that I found and Jason and I both found most exciting about working out there was uh, not just uncovering a site that is historically relevant and interesting um, and that is archaeologically uh, intact and capable of you know, communicating a great deal of information about the past, but also um, in a location that's very central to our neighborhood um, and where uh, people can come and participate um, and not only you know just help us to answer our own questions, but to share their questions, um, which very much went into our research design. Um, then to also help us answer those questions to help us interpret what this means uh, to a variety of different communities within our neighborhood. Um, so that was one of the things that I think is the most important and the thing that I definitely do not want to lose sight of is that while this site was quite exciting and very fun to dig and glamorous because we had this big, fabulous, substantial stone foundation with a big cellar hole and we did find a lot of artifacts um, and it was part of an estate of a wealthy and prominent early Marylander, um, it, it also... Uh, It reflected a lot of the um, the social relationships that were formed at that time that have led us to where we are now. And I Mm -hmm. think that having everyone in the neighborhood out there working together, talking to each other about that um, was probably the hugest accomplishment of the whole project.
2: So, uh, take us a little bit into that. I mean, you're talking, and and I, I guess one of your major objectives has to be communicating that connection to the people who live in the area, and and sort of trying to gauge their response to it. I'm curious as to what that, how how that message was delivered, and did it assume sort of. Uh, uh, an atmosphere of its own once you started exposing the actual physical evidence of this structure and the substructures around it. Did you get more enthusiasm and what kind, I mean, obviously, people were probably passing by as you were doing these excavations. Were, were you, was the project actually gaining momentum? Could you feel it? Could you feel that the interest in the community was increasing the more you exposed and the more you, the project sort of came, became part of, of sort of a local landscape?
4: Absolutely. Um, we had dozens and dozens of passersby who stopped by for a tour during the nine days that we were digging. Um, we had volunteers, uh, several who signed up to come out for a half day who ended up staying the whole day and then coming back every single day of the project after that. Really? Um, yes, uh, we had two public days at the end. We had advertised as an open house um, that we had pushed you know onto Facebook and social media and um, you had flyers everywhere. Uh, and we had probably between two and 300 people come by, despite the fact that the road was closed by uh, church activity on one day. And uh, the subsequent day, it thunderstormed for a good part of the day. But people still came out mm-hmm. and were um, honestly blown away. It was a, we, again, this was a part of that incredible serendipity that we experienced throughout the entire project, that we had a big, this, uh, the stone foundation of a large manor house is something to look at. Um, which you don't often have in, in archaeology very frequently. It's dirt, and to other archaeologists, they could see it. It's like, oh my gosh, look what you have. But the average person who's walking by on the street is going to be pretty much like, well, this is about as boring as I figured it would be. But being able to right. bring people off the street into a little wooded area that um, that most people even who use the park heavily uh, had never really explored before and show them um, the foundation of a 60 by 60 foot house uh, that burned dramatically in eighteen sixty five and it was filled with the burned debris of the home. Um, and you know uh, you know between twelve and fifteen volunteers a day coming out and working and being quite enthusiastic, uh, we had uh, volunteers who were taking over touring duties for us. Um, and we we've had a really huge response um, afterwards uh, for people who want to come out and help us complete the lab work. Uh, who want to come back next year. Um, we had people who did not want it to end. Um, it was uh, enormously successful for what we uh, imagined it would be. We thought it would be uh, a little bit more of a middling effort, at least at first, but um, it, I think it went amazingly well. And there is a tremendous amount uh, of goodwill from, from the neighborhood, which I think made all the difference.
2: Well, l- let me ask you this then. As it was being exposed, what were sort of the dramatic finds that initially caught people's eyes and, and sort of drew their interest and awakened it? And, and obviously, as those of us who have done this sort of work uh, can attest to, once you start exposing these Especially historic features, then all of a sudden it comes to life, and, and people start to look around and say, "My goodness, who knew?" Is what what reconstruct that for us? what, what how was this uh, uh, structure being exposed, and and what were the eye catchers, if you will, that uh, eventually drew people's eyes and sustained the interest? Jason, why don't you handle that one? Yeah. Um, so um, what I guess the eye catch
1: was. Um, as Lisa had mentioned, um, the house burned down in 1865. Just to give a little background on the on the actual property of the, of the structure, um, so the house um, it, it burned on on October 24th, um, 1865. Um, uh-huh. We know that because it shows up in the Baltimore Sun. Um, the uh, and the event that surrounded the fire is somewhat. Um, somewhat dramatic um it was actually a family christening that was occurring it was a christening dinner um mm-hmm. at, at the house and um as they were having their dinner sitting down to dinner the um the house the must one of the rooms caught fire and um the account from the Baltimore sun is that um passersby and um guests um evacuated that but they went they ran back in to get as much furniture as they could and apparently sure. they saved the majority of it mm-hmm. um but the rest of the house was a complete uh, complete loss so when we were excavating, we had amazing preservation. Um, when the house burnt down, you have a, you know a fire does terrible, terrible things. But it also, as far as archaeology goes, it it it's kind of serendipity again, um, because you have we had a time capsule. It this this site was was done. It was over. It was no longer occupied on that date in 1865. The family moved on. They built another house elsewhere on the property. They never returned to this property. Um, So when we started excavating, we had, like Lisa said, we had a 60 by 60 foot stone foundation, two and a half feet wide um, stone walls um, going down five feet. Um, So a very dramatic um, and and kind of glorious um, uh, feature that we could show people. Um, We exposed portions of all four sides of the house. Um, But then the artifacts that we were pulling out, because of the fire, we had materials that were Almost perfectly preserved. Um, we had nails that looked like they were just manufactured. Um, but we also had tons of china, of, of porcelain, fine, very, you know, very high quality porcelain that shows, you know, that's burnt. We have, um, glassware that's melted and we can all tie all of, majority of those objects were most likely the dinner service that the family, that the Hall family was serving at this christening dinner. Mm-hmm. And so when we have that story and we can show them the things, um, it's, you know, this is the first time, and it just so happened to be that it's 2015 now. The house burned down in 1865. It's around 150 years. It's the last time anybody touched these things. So we had people who were never involved in archaeology, only ever saw archaeology, sure. um, or in the movies. Um, and then when, as they're literally pulling out history, um, and then realizing that they're the first people to touch this 150 years, that, that was, that was pretty much, that was the, uh, That was the diva archaeology right there.
2: That's a riveting thought, and why don't you hold it, because I do want to talk about that when we come back for our last segment. Um, We will be back with this very fascinating discussion on community archaeology in northeastern Baltimore right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
0: Stimulating talk
1: gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast.
0: All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
5: Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves.
0: successful life the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com
3: Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you do-
2: we are back with our final segment on community based archaeology in the city of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, my guests are Lisa Kraus and Jason Schellenhamer, and they have been talking about uh, an initiative that they basically brought to the fore and essentially excavated and uh, mobilized people to undertake a uh, an excavation in a local park that, uh, on the basis of their own research, was part of a, <coughs> excuse me, a, a major estate called the Utah Estate, and it was a large. Home that was um, owned by a prominent family in in Baltimore that, that goes back to Revolutionary War times, but there was a single event during uh, in 1865 during which that particular building was burned down in the preservation of. The artifacts and specifically dining ware, kitchenware, and that sort of assemblage of of historic artifacts were in pristine condition. Uh, Jason, why don't you just discuss that a little bit more—the findings and and the connection between those findings and the public as interest in this excavation grew—and probably created a sense of heritage and, um, I would say, probably a certain amount of pride from the local residents. Why don't you go on with that?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, it certainly did. Um, Like I was saying before that, yeah, this was, it created a connection between the community um, when they were pulling out these things that, you know, of of a neighbor, of a historic neighbor of theirs. um, They really started Coming extremely interested in the project um, to the point where um, Lisa was mentioning, we had word spread bo- both through social media and just through neighbor communication. So when we would have some, some volunteers and we had volunteers between ages of six and 60 um, come out um, doing various things as far as you know, some, some digging, well, the six year olds weren't digging um, and uh, some screening. Um, and as they were finding this stuff, um, this, this material, like this, you know, Discard and, you know, from this, this horrific fire, um, 150 years ago, um, they would then leave after their shift is over, go home for lunch, um, and they would tell their friends. And occasionally we would see Facebook posts, um, saying, oh, this amazing stuff they're finding. And then we'd have 30 new people who didn't even know that the project was going on, um, come down and, and want to participate. And, um, as Lisa had mentioned, we had, at the end of it, we, it was a very it was a very quick project, only nine days. And Lisa and I wish we could have done it for, um, for probably three or four times that number. Um, of course, but um, it seemed like the community itself was um, reluctant to let us go. Um, they uh, they insisted that we continue excavating, um, quit our jobs, uh, our day jobs, and just do this. Um, and I think Lisa and I would be more than happy to if we didn't have <laughs> to pay the bills. Um, right but um and it's even built on i mean the 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 interesting parts of archaeology to a lot of people who are who are not familiar with with the day to day is going out you know excavating a site, um, pulling out you know identifying and cleaning off remains of structures um, or um, finding valuable artifacts and the artifacts that we weren't we were finding weren't you know not not traditionally valuable um, we you know we have broken pieces of pottery and glass and no monetary value whatsoever but the information that it can provide um, is course. invaluable and they started realizing this um, and now that the field work is over one of the things that we're actually getting a lot of interest in is as Lisa mentioned we're going to be doing you know now the lab work part of, but the lab work side of, of the uh, the project and typically not the most exciting part of the project but we're actually getting a lot a lot of interest. Everybody wants to come. Those who couldn't come out for the excavation actually want to come out now, um, just to clean the artifacts and get to get their hands on everything. Um, so in that, it's it's just it, the momentum's continuing, um, which is fantastic. And we we're already getting requests as to what time are we starting next year, and um, where are you going next year? And um, we've also gotten some other uh, support from other local archaeologists. Um, it's a tight knit community in Maryland, um, and generally archaeologists as you know um, are a very small tight-knit group um so Mm -hmm. if we don't know each other we know people who know each other um and when one of us are are doing a project and it seems interesting um we're getting other archaeologists who are now like oh let's let's see if we can contribute so we've had um some some friends of ours who uh from the maryland historical trust and from the national park service are getting involved Mm -hmm. um and we uh we're also getting help from local community colleges as well, like the Howard County Community College. Um, they've, they're in Howard County, which is the county to the west of Baltimore, and um, they've offered use of their magnetometer. Wow. Um, so um, we, um, we're still working out details, but it seems like, you know, we're, we are building on momentum. And on top of that, we're getting more and more interest, not just from our community, but all over Baltimore. So
2: Do you have a lab been, facility? It's been a good experience. Do you have a laptop? Um, still- we are working.
1: Um, we work on donations. We, we
4: have two offers. We have a, a senior center near nearby um, that's in uh, in Laraville, and then we also have the Natural Historical Society uh, that has a that has a good lab space um, uh, that I think would work very well for us. So we are we are in negotiations right now. I believe the Natural Historical Society came right out and said that would be fine. So we're we're hoping that we're going to be there at the end of July and in August.
2: What about curating the artifacts, and what are you going to do with that?
4: They will go to um, their, their city property. It's a city park, um, so uh-huh. the city owns them. They do not have a curation and storage facility, so uh, we are hoping they will go to the state uh, curation facility at Jefferson Patterson Park in Calvert County, Maryland.
2: And you're still probably in the court uh, engaged in negotiating for that. There is no negotiation actually required. Um, the nice thing about so
1: the the Calvert County the um, Uh, the Mac lab, the Maryland archeological conservancy, which is part of the Maryland historical trust, which is the, um, the state, uh, is the state historic preservation office. Um, they have an agreement at the lab that if you're an avocational group, you actually do not have to pay any curation fees. Um, so yeah. So it, it, I mean, it's, they're trying, I mean, they have an amazing state of the art facility that they continue upgrading. Um, and, um, they they are more than willing and they have the, the perfect, um, you know, program to to curate these objects. But also, um, as we did when we did the Patterson Park project, there's also interest um, to develop a um, an exhibit locally. Um, right. So that you know, Calvert County is pretty far. It's about an hour and a half drive from Baltimore City. Um, so we're finding you know one of the things the community is kind of curious about like what happens next? Like, where do these artifacts go? Um, and, um, to hear that they're all going to go an hour and a half away where they may never see them again, um, is heartbreaking to some of them. Um, so we are working with, um, our partners in developing, um, uh, some space as far as, um, as, um, displays. Um, we're also planning on doing like a small booklet, um, that can be, um, Kind of like a public booklet that everyone um, who is interested can get a copy. Um, and we're we only working have, on trying
2: We only have one minute left. Is there a website that people can turn to to find out what you're doing and possibly lend a helping hand?
4: They can go to Baltimore Heritage's website. Uh, if you Google Baltimore Heritage and Herring Run Park, uh, you will find that website, baltimoreheritage.org. Um, they have our blog posts from the field season uh, and all kinds of information, historical background research, historic maps, all kinds of cool stuff.
2: I want to thank my guests uh, Lisa Kraus and Jason Schellenheimer for uh, opening our eyes and our ears to what's going on in contemporary archaeology with community outreach and the initiatives that archaeologists are taking to simply um, extend their own hands and their own research tools and, and their intellectual capabilities to developing heritage programs in their own backyards essentially And uh, we have mentioned on numerous occasions that in many ways, this is the wave of the future for our profession. And I want to thank you both for appearing on the program. And I wish you all the best in following up on this work. Thank you so much. Thank you. And until our next episode, and until our next episode next week, uh, we wish you all the best. And keep remembering that uh, knowledge of the past is sort of a guideline to the future. And uh, we'll see you. We'll uh, we'll broadcast another program next week. Thank you very much, and good evening.
3: Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones: Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.